Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Charlie Walker. He's an explorer, writer, and public speaker. What happens when the Russian government catch you taking photos and writing articles shortly after a war breaks out? Very little that is good. Unfortunately, Charlie stumbled into precisely this situation, but thankfully he got out too, so he can tell us what happened. Expect to learn what it feels like to travel over 50,000 miles by bicycle, foot, horse, raft, ski, and dugout canoe, how close Charlie came to spending his life in a Russian prison, how long a triathlon needs to be in order for it to take four months to complete, why distinctions between European and Asian people makes no sense to anyone on the border, and much more. In other news, this episode is brought to you by the Six Minute Success Journal. If you are thinking that you need to spend the next few months focused on productivity, on planning your day, on making sure that the tasks you spend your time on are the ones you're actually meant to spend your time on, the 6-Minute Success Journal is a really simple 3 minutes in the morning, 3 minutes in the evening daily journal that helps you to be less stressed and more productive by blending practice-proven mindfulness exercises with productivity-boosting strategies. This is not only a work planner but also a mindfulness planner and it has helped more than 200,000 people to achieve their goals not only more consistently but also more calmly. It helps you to achieve the goals that actually fulfill your life instead of just filling your schedule. By reflecting on your needs and values, you figure out what you really want in life, you define meaningful goals, stop procrastinating, and create the daily routine to achieve the life that you've always wanted. Also, you can get 15% off everything from your best self. In the UK, if you go to bit.ly slash diarywisdom and use the code MW15 at checkout, and if you're in the US, search on Amazon for the 6-Minute Success Journal, or there is a link in the show notes below, use the code 15minutes at checkout. In other, other news, this episode is brought to you by Optimal Carnivore. Organ meats are some of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet. Our ancestors prized them so much for their vital properties that they prioritized eating them first. The founders of Optimal Carnivore understood the amazing benefits, but found it difficult to source a variety of high-quality organ meat. They disliked the process of preparing them and trying to make them tasty, which anyone who's tried to cook liver is probably familiar with. So, Optimal Carnivore started sourcing 100% grass-fed organ meats from New Zealand, freeze-drying the organs and encapsulating them into convenient bovine gelatin capsules. These products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and free of hormones, pesticides, antibiotics and GMOs. So, if you've been thinking that you want to introduce more organ meats into your diet, you've maybe heard about some of the huge benefits that you can get from them, but you either don't have the time or the inclination or even the taste to be able to deal with eating it and cooking it, this is an awesome way to get all of the organ meats that you need, blending that high-quality New Zealand grass-fed, grass-finished beef, without actually having to cook it at home. Also, you can get 10% off everything site-wide if you go to amazon.com slash optimalcarnivore and use the code wisdomsave10 at checkout. That's amazon.com slash optimalcarnivore and in wisdomsave10 at checkout. And in final news, this episode is brought to you by Pure Sport CBD. If you are struggling to switch off and sleep on a nighttime, their Unwind Blend is an all-natural mix of CBD and ashwagandha, lavender and chamomile, crafted to help re-regulate your sleep cycle and help achieve good quality restorative sleep. The formulation is scientifically balanced to work with the neurotransmitters in your brain, which release chemicals responsible for sleep. You will fall asleep more easily on a nighttime, wake up feeling more rested and revitalized in the morning, and awake less throughout the night as well. You can pair this with Pure Sports Mushroom Mind and Body Supplement, which contains six medicinal mushrooms. So if you've been thinking, I want to introduce mushrooms into my daily supplement regime, but I don't know where to begin, I would rather not go picking them out in the fields nearby, and if I'm getting them online, I don't know which mushrooms to get and in which proportion to each other and what time to take them, Pure Sports done all of the work for you. Also, and get 20% off all full-priced items if you go to bit.ly slash cbdwisdom. That's bit.ly slash cbdwisdom. And the code MW20 at checkout will get you 20% off everything site-wide, and they ship internationally. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Charlie Walker. Charlie Walker, welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Talk to me about what drives somebody to do the things that you have chosen to do as pursuits. Uh, there's been a lot of different drivers at different points, I guess, over the course of my career. To start off with, I was, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's too, I don't think I'm too ashamed to say that at the beginning, I was kind of quite keen to try and sort of, I don't know, stamp my mark on the world. A phrase I've used once before is uh, a young man wanting to slay dragons, but I kind of grew up in the post-dragon era. Um, and I... You know, I wanted to sort of get out there and see the world, but there was definitely quite a dose of, uh, I guess, ego wound in, wrapped up in that. And I quite liked the sort of self-image of the, I guess, the kind of thoughtful, grizzled explorer plodding through the icy wastes, you know, with only his mad mind for company. But thankfully, as the uh, as the last sort of, you know, 13 or so years have, have, have gone by, I've become a little bit more considered and it's nowadays uh, I would say roughly 50-50 between wanting to get out and sort of challenge myself uh, physically in wild places, you know, to be in the wilderness or lesser known little, you know, seldom visited people and get some insight into, into their lives and their worlds. Um, and I guess the thing that draws all that together is just a strong sense of curiosity, which uh, has never waned. It's interesting to think about what can drive people to do the things that they want to do when in the beginning, some of it might've been recognition or status or a desire for acclaim or respect from the people that you admire can take you a hell of a long way. Yeah. Well, I don't, I think to be fair, my, my, my sort of my world or my sphere that how I imagined things going didn't quite stretch to acclaim or recognition. It was, uh, I mean, I wrote in my first book about going off during, I, I studied up in, in Newcastle where I think you are Correct. from or have studied. Correct. Yeah. And in the summer holidays, I would scrape together the few pennies I had and, you know, I'd work in bars or putting up marquees or whatever all summer. And then at the end, I would have a few weeks where I could go off to somewhere obscure. And I quite liked when I came back that everyone had been, you know, partying all summer and I'd been this just sort of <laughs> absence and uh, coming back and suddenly having a story to tell and something interesting to say. I don't think I ever imagined that I would make a career out of any of this. And a career is is a sort of, you know, in inverted commas type term when you do something like this, because it's scraping together all sorts of different things. There's no kind of one single thing that I do. Um, so I, I guess it was... Uh, <laughs> perhaps more vanity than a desire for recognition or anything else that, that sort of drove me to go out and, and sort of, you know, explore. Yes. Given the dancing around of what it is that you do, people might not be familiar. How do you define what it is that you do? Are you an adventurer? Are you a, a global travels journalist? What are you? Um, I would say I'm an adventure travel writer, but that's three words, which is a lot. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah. so I guess, to, I mean, I used to allow myself to get into long drawn out, you know, protracted conversations or debates about the different meanings of the two words, adventurer and explorer. And I, and I still believe frankly that the word explorer is something basically from a bygone age with the exception of scientists astronauts uh deep sea uh submersibles would that be breaking new ground for you going to places that haven't yet been seen exactly i mean you th th there is a case to argue that we're all exploring in some sense because if you haven't been somewhere before you are exploring it but then i think that's just the verb rather than the adjective the term explorer that said the other people who do similar things to me have for quite a while just used the word explorer so i decided to stop fighting it and i don't tend to self-identify as that but i no longer quibble about it when people describe me as that um but but in reality what i do is go to places check things out come back write about it speak about it and work out what's next what was that triathlon thing <laughs> that you did the triathlon was, uh, the, the concept behind that was to travel the length of the Europe-Asia border, well, the perceived or supposed continental boundary between Europe and Asia, 
to try and explore what that is, what that means, and if it has any relevance in the modern world brackets it doesn't um we all at school learned that there are seven continents and we kind of just grew up you know having taken that for granted we just imbibed that information yeah there's seven continents but there's not clearly you look at a map and antarctica is a continent australia is clearly a continent big i think the de- dictionary definition of continent is a large contiguous landmass surrounded by a body of water so africa is arguably a continent although it's connected to arabia which is connected to eurasia as i call it um so eurasia is very clearly one big continent with this sort of complicated wiggly line through the middle of it and i started looking into what that line where that line came from how it was drawn and the first person to um bifurcate europe from asia was anaximander i think a an ancient greek geographer and philosopher 2600 years ago and he even back then it was this complicated medley of geographical features uh it was uh the azov sea the the manic depression the caspian sea the don river it was this real you know dog leg of messy features to divide europe from asia and that became important to people predominantly west of that line and over the you know ensuing 26 centuries it meant different things to different people at different times but often it was the divide between enlightenment and barbarism or democracy and despotism or christianity and islam all these different things but the 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 line that is today the sort of commonly accepted geographical border between europe and asia is it was was uh, perceived by a conceived rather by a swedish cartographer in the 17th century and it's the ural mountains the ural river the caspian sea the the caucasus mountains and then the black sea so again this weird combination of stuff so i decided to travel the length of that border by human power um so skiing the length of the ural mountain range uh, the ural river rises in the southern foothills of the ural mountains so paddle down the length of the ural river which flows into the caspian after 1509 miles uh and then cycle from the mouth of the caspian around the edge of the caspian across the caucasus mountains along the turkish black sea coast to istanbul and along the way i wanted to ask people what they thought about this border whether they were aware that they lived on a border whether they if they did whether they identified as european or asian or eurasian or both or neither or just kazakh or russian or turkish or georgian or whatever and uh it was 5200 miles and took 8 months and uh by the end unsurprisingly i found that very little people cared about this continental divide how many times did you cross backward and forward are you pretty pretty close to being able to sit on that line and wiggle down it well on the river it was very easy because you're just on the river you are on the border you know one night uh we would I, i was doing this with a with a with a friend one night we had camp in europe the next night we camp in asia it was just wherever we saw the first kind of decent sort of landing spot in this inflatable tandem kayak we bought in a siberian village um in the mountains the technical border is the watershed of the ural mountains so there we would pass back and forth across it uh you know sometimes once a week sometimes that that we were 3 months in the mountains uh so i i guess we passed back and forth over it maybe a dozen times during that 3 month period and then once we were cycling we were always on uh let me think we were on the asian side of the border until we got down and crossed into azerbaijan mm. and so everything north of the caucasus is technically europe and then south of that you're into asia um and that was kind of interesting we passed in within geographical europe we passed through this area in russia called kalmykia which is a um it's one of the many places that russia calls an autonomous republic uh it's not autonomous of course but this place uh a predominantly buddhist uh, sort of enclave within russia the people living there the kalmyks uh migrated from mongolia about 450 years ago uh they speak an archaic form of mongolian they are ethnically mongolian they speak uh, sorry they they practice buddhism it's just not something you'd expect to find in what we term europe next to that you've got dagestan which is another part of russia which is um predominantly uh muslim 
and they've had a long sort of low, low long running low level islamist insurgency there's been you know it's often touted as the most dangerous place in europe and whenever someone goes through there or you know for tv they say god isn't this place edgy but of course we found it to be the friendliest place we visited on the on the entire journey um so it, yeah that was a long answer to your europe asia crossing the border question but uh from azerbaijan onwards we were then in the in the asian side of the border uh, and georgia was the only place really where people seemed to care about that concept of a border um what do you uh, think that's due to Quite a, f a few different reasons. I think historically, uh, Georgians have seen themselves as, um, it, I mean, it's a very ancient place. It converted in about 350 as a, in, as a sort of uh, independent kingdom. It converted to Christianity. So it was a very early convert to Christianity. And it lies within the kind of the wider realm of Islam, for want of a better term. Uh, they are desperate to join the European Union. Um, I should think that will never happen because they are too important to kind of uh, meeting point between different powers. Uh, they, you know, they've got Turkey to one side, Russia to the north, Iran just across the border further south. They're in the Council of Europe, which has about 50 countries. And so every government building has a EU flag outside it because the Council of Europe and the EU flag are the same. Um, and I think they just see themselves as kind of... Uh, isolated they even though much of a third or so of russia is in europe they see russia as being part of that kind of other block maybe following the asian tradition and they want to be part of the the european community um so yeah for quite, quite a few different reasons it's 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 not entirely clear and it's something i'm hoping to get back there at some point to look into further but i think they just they also see themselves as as um inheriting the phoenician and then the greek traditions from the ancient world uh the the phoenician seafarers kind of settled the coast of georgia and so they see that as as part of their heritage if dagestan was one of the warmest places that you visited during that triathlon which i mean it's a triathlon where you skied and both paddled in a kayak so i guess it's definitely a an upgraded or amended triathlon what was one of the more dicey places that you went to um we while in uh georgia we accidentally crossed the border into south ossetia which is a region of georgia that russia annexed in 2008 in a short five-day war it's one of the um south ossetia and abkhazia these two sort of breakaway republics uh russia invaded georgia in the course of about five days they bombed uh, I mean, even the capital, Tbilisi, and the strategic sites around the capital. And uh, we we were following Google Maps on a phone, and it gave us this bit of advice uh, to get to where we wanted to go. You've arrived at this road down some mountain valley path. Uh, go up the road for about a mile, cross the river, and then head down the road on the other side, and then you'll soon be in this town. Uh, but at the bridge, there were police and they said the bridge is closed and they wouldn't explain why they were Georgian police. And they, they, they gave no reason. And during this journey, I'd been arrested in Russia probably th three times, I think. Um, it's in remote areas in Russia, in Russia, it's very hard not to get in trouble with the, the authorities, frankly, if you're a foreigner. Uh, being in remote areas is automatically qualifying you for s suspicion. Oh, they um, think that you're doing some sort of surveying, clandestine bullshit. Exactly, as if you'd send a, a, a wanker on a pair of skis rather than just use a, a satellite. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, uh, yeah, we were kind of fed up with being stymied by the authorities, even though this time it was the Georgians. And so we just went half a mile back down the river, which was only ankle deep, pushed our bikes across. It was only 40 meters wide or something. Got up the bank on the other side. It was the height of summer, so the water was very low. Got up the bank on the other side, got onto the road we wanted to follow and started cycling. Happy that we'd you know, got it, got away with it. We'll be in that town later that afternoon for a hostel and a shower and a good feed. And in less than a minute, a military jeep sped up behind us and this soldier jumped out uh, and I noticed first the Russian flag on his arm. And it confused me because the Russian border was, uh, I think, probably 30 or 50 miles north. And so I you know, thought, Why, what are you doing here? And I asked him that. And he didn't like that as a question and asked me, what are you what doing here? What are you here? doing here? Yeah, precisely. Yeah. 
And then he said, this is South Ossetia. And it turned out on sort of a later uh, review of maps that we had crossed. There's a tiny little, in the very southeast corner of South Ossetia, there's this tiny little promontory of land that sticks further south. And we had just, if it's a finger, we had just crossed the tip of the fingernail, just at this tiny little area. And the river was the border. And on, yeah, the, the guy then pointed out that there were guard towers around us and barbed wire and everything that we hadn't noticed. Um, and so we were we were sort of you know taken in for the night, put in a cell, questioned, taken to court, everything like that. Um, so that was a little bit sketchy. Um, the journey, the, after about five hours of interrogation from Russian security officials, they then drove us to Shkinvali, the capital of South Ossetia, which is this sort of supposedly standalone um, state, but of course it's entirely run by Russia. Um, but the South Ossetians were, if anything, more angsty and they the, the journey in the night we got stopped at one point some guy more or less tried to rob us while we were in police custody which is quite unusual um and then in the cafe we were put in this sort of you know the cell was fine it was it was nothing too bad but then they hailed us interrogated us for hours and hours and hours the next day never fed us or anything like that and then finally when we were in court i complained when they said is there anything you'd like to say i said yeah we haven't been fed and the judge got angry at the police and forced them to feed us and we got a nice plate of uh, sort of uzbek plov um and then we're after paying our fine handed back across the border to the georgian authorities and carried on on our way so that was probably the hairiest moment uh, sort of politically but the the three month ski through the urals we we were starting about 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle on the Arctic coast in February, which is really cold. Um, so we had temperatures down to about minus 45, I think, um, during that ski, intense blizzards and winds, um, which pushes the wind chill down even further. Uh, there was a lot of flat light. It was hard to, to sort of gauge avalanche risks, risks at various points um, on our way through the Ural Mountains. And the maps we were working off were these old Soviet um, sort of military you know, cartographic survey maps from the 1950s. So we were working off these kind of slightly approximated contour lines and suddenly, you know, we'd just find ourselves clawing our way up a 60 degree slope. Uh, so that was all quite um, sketchy as well, I guess. What was that place that you went to that you said is the most sparsely populated cold place on the planet? Was that part of the triathlon or was that the no, that walking was thing? That was this year. Um, oh, that was this so year. That's an area called Yakutia. Um, so the, the most sparsely populated country on Earth is Mongolia. And Mongolia has, um, let me get this right, uh, three people, I believe, per square kilometer. <laughs> but Yakutia has three square kilometers per person. No um, way. And what, so so what's Yakutia? Yakutia is a, a country all of its own? Yeah, Yakutia, or, or as it's also known, Sakha Republic, or Republic of Sakha, is a, a an administrative region of Russia. Um, it's basically the same size as India. I think I worked out it's 94% the size of India, but there's only 1 million people. Um, India has 1.4 billion, I think, 1.3 billion. Yeah, so you've uh, got an entire country nearly the size of India with the population of Newcastle city centre. Yes, yeah, on a Friday night. Um, it's, it's, and most of it is relatively uninhabitable. Um, about half of it sits north of the Arctic circle. Where would this be on a map? Let's say someone's looking at a map. Is it so just run across the top you, of Russia? If you go to, yeah, if you go to Beijing and then go about 2000 miles north, you're probably in the middle of Yakutia. Um, and it goes up to the North coast, but it's a huge, uh, area of Russia. It's sort of heads right down sort of close to Lake Baikal, which is in the middle of Siberia. Um, it's, but it's absolutely, it's the size of India, but it's up, tucked away in the northeast of Russia. There's only one more kind of district to the east of it, this place called Chukotka, and that's the peninsula part that kind of reaches out towards um, Alaska. Uh, so it's absolutely vast. And up there, the, you know, the, the coldest inhabited place on Earth, this city called Verkhoyansk, is in Yakutia, just close to where I started this trek earlier this year. Um, and they had a temperature about 100 years ago recorded. And it was minus, I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it was minus 68.4 degrees centigrade Celsius. So really cold. Um, you, you know, you don't want to be outdoors <laughs> in that much. Uh, but the average winter daily low temperatures in, in much of it are below minus 40. It's really, really cold. Um, and yeah, that was a very different experience earlier this year in Russia because when I was there in 2017, it was peacetime, 
But three days after I arrived this year, uh, peacetime ended. And, uh, well, to be fair to the Ukrainians, they would say peacetime ended in 2014 when Crimea was annexed. But uh, the rest of Ukraine was invaded uh, three days after I arrived. So the rest of the journey was a little bit dicey. What happened there? Uh, well, I spent the first two months hiking along this frozen river, starting from a little town in the middle of Yakutia, hiking north, uh, a couple of frozen rivers, in fact, up towards the Arctic coast. And it was really interesting. The reason I went was to go and sort of see and meet the people living there, see what their lives are like. Uh, a lot of the people there are, in fact, the majority of people there are ethnically indigenous Siberians. So they've lived in the area for hundreds of years and have survived sort of Pre, pre the Russian um, colonization of the area uh, about 400 years ago, they, they, you know, they survived by hunting, by herding, by living often semi-nomadic lifestyles in this incredibly harsh, sort of inhospitable part of the world. But there are still people living to a greater or lesser extent, somewhat traditional lifestyles or kind of a combination of the sort of Soviet communist uh, enforced way of life with the uh, the previous ways of existing. Um, so I wanted to go and see, meet these people. And that's what I did for the first two months. I had a really interesting time. I would spend about a week out in the wilderness, hiking along, camping in my tent, temperatures down to nearly minus 50. And then once a week, I'd stop into a village and meet interesting people and learn about their lives. But after about three weeks, I was um, I was taken into a police station in the, the only one town along my whole route. From the start to the finish, there was one town in the middle. How long was the route going to be in terms of time? Uh, two months. And, um, oh, and you'd already done two months. So you must have been nearly finished. No, no. So after about one month, halfway along, right. I, yep. I, was, I was taken in by the police and questioned and accused of uh, committing journalism while traveling on a tourist visa and asking people provocative questions about Ukraine. And there was this long sort of back and forth questioning, you know, interrogation process. And at the end of which I realized, well, they're, they're going to fine me uh, 2,000 rubles, which is about 20 pounds. So not um, actually in the course of the previous month that had gone from being worth about 20 pounds to being about four pounds. I was about to <laughs> say, again, yeah, the hyperinflation would have made, given you a great exchange rate. Well, it would have if uh, all bank cards hadn't stopped working sometime earlier. So I was just on the cash that I'd taken with me by this point. Um, but uh, I realized that I could pay this fine and then just get out into the wilderness and carry on. They weren't going to hassle me after that. At least these two policemen, the only two. In Were you on your own for this trip, by the way? Yes. Yeah, just me. Okay. Um, and so I so I left them, carried on walking, got up to the coast, spent the final two weeks walking along the frozen Arctic sea ice which was absolutely beautiful, just this huge expanse of whiteness stretching out to the northern horizon. There were um, aurora borealis playing over the sky at night, incredible starscapes. It, it was really sort of sublime, serene. But then I reached my final town, this uh, this port town called Tixi, which used to have about 15,000 people, I think, during the sort of Soviet heyday. And as it turned out, more than half the people there uh, are military personnel. Anyway, once I arrived in Tixi, it didn't take long for the police to um, to arrest me once again, question me once again. And this time I was accused of the same things, but with the added accusation or allegation of uh, photographing military sites. Uh, so I was I was taken to court once again. It's a bit of a sort of kangaroo court sham trial late at night, um, found guilty. And I thought I was they told me that I was going to be banned from Russia for five years. I'd have to pay a £50 fine this time and I would have to leave the country. And so I thought that I would fly back down to Yakutsk, the capital city of the region that I'd flown into, get a flight out of the country and, and be done with it. But uh, it turns out that I was escorted by a, a marshal down to Yakutsk. Uh, and then another one picked me up at the airport in Yakutsk, took me to a detention center and I was locked up for the next uh, month until finally I was deported. So it was all quite a, the, the thing that worried me most is I never knew, I was never told how long I would be locked up. They said, you're here until we deport you. And I said, when's that? And they said, oh, we don't know, there's paperwork. Um, but then, so I launched, I lodged an appeal. I managed to hire a local lawyer and uh, the appeal was immediately rejected just out of hand. They said that my, uh, my charges were too serious and had a political nature to them. Uh, so they, they were accusing me of being a journalist, asking provocative questions about Ukraine and photographing military sites. But you put all those together and you've essentially got through the Russian state's uh, perspective, 
uh, a foreign journalist getting ready to spread stories about the Russian military that run counter to the state's official narrative. And they introduced in early March, about a week after the invasion of Ukraine, a new law with a sentence of up to 15 years for just that. So while I was in there, I was thinking, you know, any minute they might just take me back to court, try me again with this sort of criminal charge. And I could be here until I'm nearly 50. Um, so it was a it was a pretty hair raising time, mostly, frankly, boring, frustrating, uh, enraging. You know, I've, I've never really been prone to uh, a hot temper. But while I was in there, I found myself having sort of irrational fits of rage. At one point, they dragged me out of the cell in handcuffs and suddenly I was just um, thrust in front of a uh, TV camera and I was interviewed for state TV news. They just threw all the same accusations at me as the police had in court. Um, so that felt like I was being kind of prepared or, or run through the court of public opinion and that things could get really quite bad after that. Um Brittany Griner, the American basketball player, she's still in Russia. She's been in uh, in prison for, I think, about 120 days, four months, more perhaps, five, maybe closer to six months now, actually. Um, and there's uh, British uh, people who have been detained in sort of around uh, Mariupol, and they've all been given territories of Donetsk and Lugansk. Uh, the death sentence can apply, so they've been sentenced to death. Presumably, uh, two of two or three of them now, and I think two more about to follow, along with a Swede and a Croatian. Um, presumably with a view, I, I, I think and hope that they won't be executed. They'll probably be um, sort of used or bargained for prisoner swaps. Um, but there was just, while I was on the inside, while I was in the prison, there was just always hanging over me the possibility that they're going to use me, make an example of me, and I could spend uh, months or even years in this place. So frankly, the fact that I'm out now is, is uh, I, I do marvel at it every few days, uh, how lucky I've been to actually be released. Yeah, it seems like a roll of the dice. I'm going to guess that some of the people that were detained were detained for probably no more or maybe even less than what you were detained for. And they're still there and now potentially facing the death penalty, except they happen to be in a, a different area with a different code and the wrong judge and the wrong inspector or whatever. Well, the, the folks who are being given the death penalty, they, they were charged with uh, being mercenaries and uh, sort of partaking in a foreign war, as the Russians see okay, it. A little bit worse. So, yeah, so they were fighting with the Ukrainian army. But one of them had been uh, in the Ukrainian special forces, I think, for several years already and is uh, also a Ukrainian citizen. But they've just thrown the book at him because he's also got UK citizenship. But Brittany Griner, she just had, or allegedly, I mean, we, there's no evidence that we know of, allegedly she just had a a vape cartridge with trace amounts of hash or CBD oil or something like that. Uh, and she's, you know, she's been in prison for the best part of half a year. So that's more trivial. She got frankly, sentenced than, to 15 years. It was uh, nine years. I think it was well, maybe, maybe, um, maybe it was nine, but I think they wanted nine and a half. That was it. Yeah. They, right. they wanted nine. Well, she's and done half. half. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. That was just last week. I think um, we, I, learned, I, we learned, we uh, learned about, Dubai has a particularly strict drugs policy. And this guy flew from Las Vegas to Dubai and had had some THC in something while he was in Vegas, got pancreatitis in Dubai. And then when they did a, a urine test of him, he was found to have trace amounts of THC in his urine. And that constitutes possession in Dubai. <sighs> I, mean, I don't even know what to say about that. That's uh, wild. And that seems like that's largely just, you know, it's just shitty luck. Um, yeah. Okay, so go take me back. Like, you get, you get taken in. Who in their right mind, when Russia has just invaded the Ukraine, is helping a British journalist who was dicking about taking photos and writing stuff for a, a laugh, and because that's what he likes to do, who... Who was prepared to give you any assistance? Why would they? Um, frankly, there, there's not really many diplomatic levers remaining between Britain and Russia. Um, but they they tried to help where they could. They were also six time zones away in Moscow. So that, there was that. Um, I had a local friend who... Uh, you know, bought some books to the prison for me to read. That was that was very kind of her or him. Um, and... Uh, the, the lawyer that I hired was just a local lawyer 
who was prepared to do that for the several hundred dollars that he was paid to do it. But his job was basically just to take my case, present it to the court, have it rejected. And that was more or less the end of it. Um, I believe he did help or certainly tried to expedite the movement of papers from the court system up in this port city on the north or port town on the north where I was arrested down to the capital where I was being held, which uh, sped things up a little bit. Any uh, one further day of delay for the papers not getting there apparently would have led to me not being deported at that time. They only deport people at certain times. Uh, so I was deported in late May and the next window was going to be late July. So that would have been another two months already. And had I been there for another two months, as the situation continued to deteriorate in Ukraine, as the British and Russian relationship continued to disintegrate too, um, there's, I think, a good chance had I been there another two months that the, my case would have been sort of picked up by the authorities. They wouldn't have wanted to release you. You would have been more it, valuable to them. Exactly. I would have been retried with a criminal charge for either uh, that that um, fake news charge that they brought in or just simply uh, espionage because they said I was creeping around in in remote areas where where you're not really meant to be and they said I was photographing military sites. So you're not going to go back to Russia anytime well, soon? I'm going to well, I can't. I can't for the next five years. Uh, but I I mean, I would love to go back to Russia. I, I, I have a lot of affection for the place and for the vast majority of the people I've met in Russia who, uh, and there are, of course, plenty of exceptions to this, people who are zealously in favor of everything that's happening, not just outwardly, but also inwardly. Um, but there are lots of people who are just essentially victims and prisoners of their own regime. And this doesn't mean that their lives are being torn up, being separated, but it does mean that they aren't free to, to speak, to say what they think, to write, to publish what they think, to protest or anything like that. So I, I do hope that Russia sees... Uh, reform or revolution frankly in in my lifetime and i do get to go back but until that day i, I wouldn't be sensible or safe to do so how culpable do you think <laughs> citizens are for being complicit convinced <clears throat> perhaps by m malicious ideas and ideologies as a part of a regime that they don't know anything else but that it's a really good question. I think that's um, one of the most interesting, difficult and important questions that there is at the moment. And I've, I've wrestled with this quite a lot and I don't have any uh, definitive answer for it. I go through phases of feeling and thinking different things. But broadly speaking, um, plenty of people in Russia are just completely sold on the propaganda they've been fed. They genuinely think that the Ukrainian uh, leadership and governance is fascistic, that they are neo-Nazis. Um, you only have to watch, you know, 10, 20 minutes of state TV news in Russia to, to just get just the level of bullshit that they're being fed. Now, there, there is... Um, there is censorship, so it is hard to access uh, external media or news. The, basically, all the independent media has been shut down. There are a few remaining, but they are only remaining because they are towing the government line. Um, but it is still possible, or at least it was when I left, and I believe it is, it is still possible to get to visit quite a lot of foreign news sites. Um, but they might not be in Russians. They probably aren't understandable to the vast majority of people outside Russia. And I, I, I think the censorship on external websites has been uh, a lot more rigorous on uh, Russian language outlets. So there are, there are plenty of people in Russia who know what they're being told is a lie, but can't do anything about it and frankly stand to gain nothing and really achieve nothing by speaking up. You know, all they'll do is endanger their themselves, their families, um, and they'll just bring the wrath of the state down on them. Uh, there are people who are cynically exploiting the situation. You only have to see the little clips put onto Twitter from some of the main panel discussions on uh, Russia One, the main news channel, to see that some people are just, you know, tub thumping, they're full of shit and are just happily... Uh, repeating, parroting anything that Putin or his propaganda machine says. So it's, 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 it's tricky. This question, I suppose, is coming up most often with regard to, in, you know, to international sports tournaments. 
So should Russian competitors be allowed to compete? Uh, they were banned from uh, Russians and Belarusians, I think, were banned from Wimbledon, but aren't from the Cincinnati Open in Ohio at the moment. Um, there was a story today, two Russian, I believe two Russian female tennis players were having a match and then a spectator who had a Ukrainian flag draped around her was uh, ordered by the tournament to remove it because one of the players complained. Now, people who seem to show, and Russians abroad, who seem to show an open prejudice against Ukraine, I think that's a problem. And I don't think that there's uh, an excuse for that because they don't have to say anything. Especially if you're in the middle of a tennis match. Well, exactly. Um, and so there's that. There's there's saying nothing is very different to saying something. And I don't think we should condemn people for an absence of protest where it's so dangerous to protest. That said, the longer the war goes on and the more it starts to feel like the only way for the war to end is through a vast popular uprising in Russia for which there isn't the appetite. You, there, that's there, what you think one of the solutions or one of the routes out of this current conflict is is for the war to be won from within Russia itself. Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's only three, I suppose. One is uh, some sort of uh, treaty, essentially concessions from Ukraine, giving Russia what it's taken and calling it a day. Politically, I don't see that happening, or at least not for a long while. There is still the appetite in Ukraine to carry on fighting. <clears throat> Zelensky does still seem to have the support of the majority of the country to not concede to Russia. Um, the other would be, well, the other two would be Ukraine winning or losing the war, i.e. Ukraine being entirely annexed by Russia or Russia being entirely repelled from Ukraine. But that would probably, as things stand at the moment, have to include the Crimean Peninsula as well. I don't see that happening uh, or not. Again, not anytime soon. The saddest thing about this war is it looks set to grind on for months and potentially even years. But the only other option I, I see short of things escalating to some sort of you know, nuclear hellscape is is the people of Russia turning on their government, rising up. But And there are, there are plenty of people in Russia who want that to happen, but not enough, in my opinion. I think that lots of people in Russia, predominantly older people and people uh, away from the more cosmopolitan urban centers, where I think there's a little bit more awareness of and access to foreign media, um, people away from those places and older people support the war and support Putin. And Putin is still seen as the essentially the savior who brought stability to Russia after the crazed kind of kleptocracy of the 1990s after the Soviet Union was uh, dissolved. Um, there was just that crazy period where all the oligarchs, everything was just robbed. People grabbed whatever they could. They sold off whatever they could. And uh, it was around about the time Putin came into power that that sort of lessened. That's not to say that Putin and his cronies haven't continued you know, plundering the country as, as much as they can. And various estimates of Putin's private wealth stretch up to about the $200 billion mark, um, although he can't really take that away with him. The minute he's out of office, he's, he's, he's probably dead. Um, so that's a really long, rambling and con self-contradictory answer to your question. And the simple answer is I really I just I don't have a perfect answer that question but i i do want people to think about it and discuss it more because i think it's really important and i do worry about the sort of rise and spread of russophobia um because a lot of people aren't culpable they don't have a say over what happens and the incredible crackdown on the early um sort of uh, protests that were went right across the country in the first few days of the war but within a week about fifteen thousand people have been arrested many of whom were thrown in prison so protest in a in a state that has quite such a huge police and military presence is nigh on impossible it's kind of the difference between the art and the artist thing right that you have a population and then you have populists and then you have the politicians that are controlling them and i think that yeah it it does suck it, it's unfortunate that russians are being tarred with a brush <clears throat> that they perhaps didn't choose that their government has put in place for them. And yeah, it's kind of like what you were talking about to do with sports. Athletes have come before in the Russian um, Athletics Federation 
and they've been doping, which means that now in future, you don't get to play anymore. Even if you're clean. I don't think that any of the Russian athletes are clean. I think that this is the sort of thing that's going to be continuing in any case. My point being, there is something that feels unfair about that, but you have to draw a line at some point and you have to say, look, the difference between this being uh, individual and this being systemic, and even if it means that out of 100 athletes, 10 of them might be clean or out of 100 population people, 10 of them might be pro-Putin or whatever, um, it is very, very difficult. And I think that's where the, where the nuance sort of comes in. The sport, I think, raises some really interesting different examples because... Uh, so tennis is a good example because you don't really play tennis outside of the Olympics. I think you don't really play tennis for your country. There's also that, uh, is it the Davis cup Europe versus America, but you don't play tennis for your country. You play as an individual. It's the same with golf predominantly. Um, but a football team or a, uh, Olympic, uh, squad, that's a bit different. And I, you know, I think it's right that, for example, the so the UEFA final was taken away from Russia pretty much as soon as the invasion happened. It also wasn't feasible from a security perspective to get all those many, probably tens of thousands of people into Russia for that game anyway. So it was a bit of a no brainer. But if you are in a team that is flying the Russian flag and sort of, you know, that I suppose if you're if you're uh having the anthem played for you upon victory. I mean, the, the national anthems aren't played at the end of a tournament in Wimbledon, for example. Uh, when Nadal wins, they don't play the Spanish national anthem. On the once every 80 years that a Brit wins or an English or a Scottish person wins, you don't get that anthem because it's individuals playing. But a football team is a very different idea. And the Olympics is the same because the Olympics is all about well, supposedly, I guess, international cohesion, but it's about countries competing with each other on the on the global stage. Um, so sports does have those differing kind of examples. And and again, it's it's sometimes difficult to draw the line. But I suppose if you are a team wearing the flag, having the anthem, then you stand for that country and to compete in international sports should be a privilege. And I don't think uh, countries, for example, China, with its awful human rights record, I don't think they should have been allowed to host the Winter Olympics, let alone arguably compete at the Winter Olympics. Although if you start ticking off all the dictatorships and autocracies and people with bad human rights records, the Olympics is going to start looking like, um, well, kind of the you know EU Games or something sparse, like that. Sparse, yeah. to say the least, I think. So given, yeah. let's say that you're doing these long trips. I mean, you've done walking to the northernmost points of a bunch of different places, cycling around tons of places. How do you renormalize coming back to everyday life after you've been away on these trips? You mentioned before that you, uh, during your time at uni or whatever, would come back and kind of have this new uh, viewpoint that you would have been absent, that you would have done something that was different. But now, I mean, you've got family, you've got friends, you've got, I don't know. It's you're coming back to a very different sort of world. You have changed an awful lot, and yet the world has continued the same. How do you renormalize? Uh, it's there's no sort of one way. I suppose it's different every time, and frankly, broadly speaking, gets easier every time I go back. And and it depends a lot on how long you've been away. So my journeys are varied from two months to four and a half years. And coming back after four and a half years, that's odd because your life has become whatever it is that you're doing for four and a half years. Uh, you know, constantly moving on the road for four and a half years. But going away for two or three months is it's a fair old amount of time. The thing that's most different when I come back is not the fact that I'm back home or back in the UK. It's the fact that I'm no longer waking up in a tent each morning and, and, and hiking or cycling or kayaking or whatever it is. So it's the, I guess it's that change from uh, movement to just, well, no longer flux. You're just, you're in the same spot. It's that... Uh, standing still. And Do you feel that uncomfortable doing bit. that? At first, I get a bit sort of, you know, itchy. So when I got back from uh, Russia, um, I arrived at uh, about six in the morning at Heathrow. Um, my girlfriend and an uncle came to pick me up. Uh, we had breakfast. She went to work. I came home and I just felt, I mean, I, I hadn't really slept, but I suddenly felt just kind of, you know, stir crazy in the flat. So I went out for a run, but I'd been in a prison cell for the last month. So my, my, I didn't have shit for legs. So I ran about three miles and then was limping and just had to sort of sadly limp back home <laughs> and start unpacking. Um, so there is that sort of first sense of almost claustrophobia, but I do find that starts to wear off quicker. 
and there's always plenty to be getting back on with normally coming back from a journey is so busy i've got uh i mean sadly lots of emails to answer lots of you know friends to catch up with you just kind of you rush back into normal life and the first day might be a bit claustrophobic and a bit disorientating um and then that discombobulation dies away and another couple of weeks suddenly you might kind of go oh wow i'm just that quickly back into a much more sedentary lifestyle and that's when you start to think right well what's next and then you start focusing your attention on whatever is next and uh, and um, that's a good distraction how do you commit to something which is going to take four and a half years to do that was relatively straightforward strangely straightforward um largely because i was 22 at the time i was 21 when i decided to do it i think and I had no ties, really. Um, I just had my first job, and so I was saving a little bit of money, but it wasn't something that I wanted to do forever. And um, I, I was, a, I think, I mean, I was young and I was quite naive, and I was able to just make that rash decision. And as I said earlier, it was that kind of, you know, almost wanting to, essentially, a Homeric boast, wanting to do something big and bold and, and brash and, and sort of you know, slay a dragon in my own metaphorical sense. So that was actually quite straightforward. I, I made the decision. I was drunk at the time, admittedly, on uh, some Mongolian vodka in a forest in Siberia um, by a little campfire. Uh, that's a longer story that I don't think we've got time for now. Um, but I made that decision. I drew some wiggly lines on a little, um, in the back of a lonely planet, they had those tiny little world maps and I kind of squiggled over it. I woke up in the morning, looked at it and thought, right, let's do that. Um, and then just about a year later, set off and got going. And the main thing about that journey is I didn't really prepare anything. I didn't train. I just saved a bit of money. I got a tent, an old bicycle and uh, some pannier bags, saddlebags to carry everything. And when I was ready, I just set off and uh, it was kind of as simple as that. I suppose giving yourself a, a start date and telling people about what you're going to do is, is a bit of a hack because um, if you're someone like me who will be embarrassed to back down from something they said they'll do, you're then in some sense committed. Um, and that seemed to work for me on, on that occasion and on several since then. Was that a specialist bike of some kind? Did it have any important attributes that helped you to survive for several thousand miles? Nope. Heavy steel frame, um, no suspension. Uh, it would have cost, I think, about three or four hundred pounds new. I got it secondhand on eBay for about a hundred pounds. Um, I put Big on seat. Big seat? Uh, I wrote a, a letter a handwritten letter to a saddle maker called Brooks. Um, they make very beautiful leather saddles. They've been around for about 150 years. They're based in Oxford or Oxfordshire, I think. Um, and they're really expensive. Well, I mean, they're not that expensive. They're about 150 pounds, but that's more than I had for even a bike. Um, and they, over time, they sort of contour and mold to your ass. And so they fit. Uh, so I didn't have padded shorts. I, I cycled without padded shorts. I just wore you know, boxer shorts and shorts or trousers. Uh, but I wrote them a letter saying, I'm going off to do this thing. I'm going to raise a bit of money for charity while I do it. I'm going to cycle 40 odd thousand miles. It'll take about four years. Um, and at the end, I said, I honestly think I can say that I'm speaking from my ass when I say thank you very much. And they said they get hundreds of requests every month. Um, but due to that one little kind of throwaway cheeky line, they said, yeah, here you go. Here's a saddle. Um, so that was perhaps the most sort of specialist part of the bike was just a saddle. Um, and 40, that was, 40,000 miles. Yeah. 43 or 44, I think. Yeah. You must be in the top thousand people on the planet in terms of how far you've traveled on a bicycle. It's you and it's professional cyclists and that's it. Mm, well, I mean, there are many thousands of professional cyclists. Yeah, so, fair point. I mean, okay, top. I might come in the top sort of, you know, 50,000. Yeah, but that's still um, an awful lot. And of non-professional cyclists, probably easily within the top thousand. People that aren't doing it for the pursuit of the sport, even the amateurs and stuff like that. I mean, who chooses to go and do that far just because adventure? Yeah, I mean, the bicycle is a, a really good means to an end when it comes to adventure because you can travel for nothing for free all you need is is food to fuel you um because you you're always in the places in between you get to see you get to really see a place in in a in a really good depth um i suppose walking is is one level further um but you can still cover comfortably 60 to 100 miles a day and have time besides to see people meet people rather see things learn things whatever 
you can sleep for free in anywhere in a tent. You just pull over, find a little bit of woodland or in the desert or in the mountains, wherever you are, you just find some little space, put up your tent. So you can travel for basically nothing um, for a really long distance at a pace that is really conducive to seeing the places that you are and, and sort of scratching that bit deeper beneath the surface. And you're not just jetting through places as you would on a train or a plane or a car or a motorbike even, uh, because you are traveling slowly enough to force you to stop in lots of places, the villages uh, between the towns that other people might visit if they were just on a shorter tour. But not so slowly <clears> as <throat> if you were perhaps walking that you would never be able to get from one place to another quite so quickly and be able to see as much. Exactly. I mean, there was there's a, a Scottish guy called Mark Beaumont who cycled 18,000 miles around the world in 78 and a half days, I think, a few years back. And he has the record for the. But I mean, he was cycling 280 odd miles a day um, with uh, you know, support. Crew. It's a very different type of experience to what I was aiming at. And I, the, the bike was just the means to the end for me. The end was to was to, to experience things to see, to do, to learn. How did you find yourself changed after that? I was browner, uh, <laughs> mostly from sort of dirt and grime rather than actually a suntan. I was hairier. Um, I had a sort of beard down to my nipples pretty much by the end of it. Um, I was very, very comfortable in my own company, potentially a little bit too much so at first, but I had spent just months and years by myself and had learned to be really comfortable by myself. But that was a struggle. It took ages to kind of get that balance right between feeling uh, happily alone and feeling lonely. Um, so I th that was probably the biggest difference, I guess. Also, I'd just seen a lot more of the world. And I I mean, everyone is very changed between 22 and 27, which is the age I left and, and came back at. So I was probably different in lots of ways. Um, that's a slightly evasive answer, I guess. <laughs> I always wonder about, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, how much of the wisdom that we like to attribute to our own efforts and our personal development and the bits of the world that we've seen and the conversations we've had and the introspection we've done, how much of that just comes along for the ride as a byproduct of getting older? I often think well, that a good chunk of it is is maybe just you being having been around for another year or two years or five years. Absolutely. And I think the you know, for most people, thankfully, the longer they're around the more confident they become within themselves. I mean, this can lead to problems. You do get people who get a little bit too confident, perhaps. And, uh, you know, with age, they're more likely to sort of, you know, attain positions of power with which they can, you know, cause problems. Um, but predominantly, I think we get more confident as we get older. And confidence just kind of, I think, breeds a fuller understanding of your life's experience and the sum of your life's experiences. And that's going to happen regardless of if you're cycling around the world for four years or you're working in an office, having day to day experiences and interactions with lots of different or the same people. We all grow and sort of broaden our horizons throughout time. And there's lots of different ways of doing that. And that's why I've, I've never been someone to preach the idea that uh, everyone should travel and that travel is uniquely transformative. For me, it has proved to be very transformative. But again, as you suggest, potentially that's just the passage of time. Mm. What places did you go to that were surprisingly enjoyable? You mentioned earlier on that Dagestan was a place that you went to that perhaps in advance you wouldn't have thought of as a, a bastion mm. of fun, warm welcomeness. Uh, well, any, any other places or places if people are thinking that they fancy going to do a trip that they should probably consider that wouldn't be on the typical list? Iran is probably the most surprising place I've ever been to. Um, now, I assume that the majority of your listeners will be British and American. And Brits and Americans don't exactly get an easy passage into Iran. You can't. Uh, this didn't used to be the case. The first two times I went, you could travel independently. But now you need to be on a tour with a guide and a sort of prearranged you know, itinerary. So you can no longer quite experience it in the same way. But even so, Iran is, and I've been I've probably spent about six months there in total. It remains the friendliest place I've ever been, the single friendliest place. I've been to about half the world's countries and Iran stands out head and shoulders above the rest for just the, the incredibly warm welcome. And these are people who know that I'm, uh, you know, just to sort of dispel the slightly lazy stereotypes, perhaps. These are people who know that I'm not a Muslim 
potentially not even a practicing religious person. These are people who know that I come from a country that um, doesn't particularly want good things for for theirs, or at least is politically at loggerheads with them. But um, Iran is a good example, I suppose. This loops back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier with with Russia and Russians. Iran is a great example that many people aren't and don't feel represented by their governments and uh, their country is not just what we see or hear in the news. Um, A country is made up of, well, in Iran's case, about 80 million people. um, And there's a complete diversity within that. And the vast majority of people I met, the overwhelming majority were incredibly warm, friendly, interesting, um, open-minded, on most topics, but of course, people have been indoctrinated by a, a you know state censorship and, and a lack of access to the broader kind of market of ideas. Um, but yeah, that's the one place I would say that has surprised me most. Interesting. What about lessons that you've taken from this? I'm aware that it's always difficult to kind of synthesize something that you've been doing for a decade and a half. But if there was a bunch of insights that you think that you've gained, or the ones that you find most valuable that you think other people should really take to heart certainly seems like one of them is that most of the world is quite warm and welcoming and friendly and not hostile i'm going to guess that that might be something yeah that's definitely pretty much the default wherever i've been in the world is for people normal people authorities are often a slightly different case but um normal people just want to help out really um i it probably helps that i have often traveled in quite a vulnerable manner without um uh sort of shows of visible wealth, for example. You know, I've basically never had anything worth robbing, certainly not while traveling. Um, But, I mean, I suppose the main thing, which is really hard to to phrase without sounding trite or cliche, but it's cliche for a reason, is that you, I mean, it makes you sound like some sort of um, motivational speaker, but most people are a lot more capable than they think they if you set your sights a bit higher than you expect then you will probably rise up to meet them and if you don't you will at least rise up to you know higher than you'd expect and failing well you know giving something a go not completing it but having done better than you ever imagined you could is really really valuable now none of that is a secret and there are many, many people who charge many, many dollars or pounds out there to uh, to tell you that. But it's quite a straightforward truth. Uh, and just making that first step, getting out your door, whether literally or metaphorically, is, is the simple key to that. Just doing something, starting something. And uh, most people will be surprised by what they manage to, uh, to pull off. It's strange because there's that the matthew principle to those who have more uh, those who have everything more will be given to those who have nothing more will be taken and you start to see in the world people uh, diverge into more of what it is that they're doing at the moment and it's the inertia it's the getting out of the door it's the beginning of the first step it's committing to doing the thing where almost everybody gets stuck because once you start to do the thing Not doing the thing takes more energy than continuing to do the thing. It's the change. I remember I was learning about this guy. I think he maybe swam somewhere to the Bahamas, some insane route that he'd done, and he had to go there and back. And he said that he wasn't emotional. He'd nearly died, and there was all swells and all sorts of chaos had ensued. And the only time that he ever really felt emotion, he said, was when he got to land. And it was because of the deceleration from what he'd felt to what he was feeling now. And I think that that's kind of true just generally for when we're trying to make changes. Changes, right? It's not continuing to do the thing. If you're getting up on time and going to the gym and you've got healthy relationships and your food is okay and you're not an alcoholic, it that is what you tend to continue doing. Yeah, I mean, one way of putting it, I suppose, is that once you're pressurized, for want of a better term, uh, the only thing that's sort of shocking or jarring is depressurization or decompression rather. Um, you know, once you once you've got those wheels rolling, stopping is harder than than just rolling with it. I agree. Charlie Walker, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to keep up to date. Oh, actually, what are you doing next? Tell us what's, um, what's, what's up next for you. Well, I'm, I've just started work on a book about this experience in Russia. But, um, you know, don't hold your breath. Watch this face. It'll, that'll be a while. 
I've got a few ideas bouncing around at the moment for what journey will be next, but uh, I haven't decided on anything yet, so I'm not going to uh, make any um, loud boasts that I will then feel forced to uh, to stick to regardless of the viability of them. Um, so uh, in the meantime, yeah, people can keep up with what I'm doing on uh, Instagram, uh, at CW Explore. It's the same on Twitter, at CW Explore. My website, cwexplore.com. Uh, there's a couple of books I've written about my experiences, which can be found on Kindle and Audible and uh, my website, Amazon, wherever. Um, but uh, yeah, that's me for the time being. And uh, I'm sure there'll be another journey before long. Charlie, I appreciate you. Thanks, mate. My pleasure. Cheers. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget that if you are listening, you should have already got a copy of the Modern Wisdom Reading List, 100 books that you should read before you die, and there's links to buy them and descriptions about why I like them and fiction and nonfiction, and it's free. Go to chriswillx.com books to pick up your copy right now. Also, don't forget you can get a 15% discount on the amazing 6-Minute Diary by going to bit.ly slash diarywisdom and the code MW15 in the UK. And in the USA, just search on Amazon for the 6-Minute Diary and use the code 15minutes at checkout. Also, you can get 10% discount on all of Optimal Carnivore's products at amazon.com slash optimalcarnivore and the code WISDOMSAVE10. And you can get a 20% discount on the highest quality CBD from Pure Sport at bit.ly slash CBDWisdom and the code MW20 at checkout. I'll see you next time.